0: So if you could stand with me for the reading of God's Word. The text is from Galatians chapter 2 verses 1 through 10. Then after 14 years I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus also along. I went in response to a revelation and and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders. I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running and and had not been running my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised as though he was a Greek, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. As for those who are held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go out to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. This is God's word. You may be seated.
1: Okay, thank you so much. Before we dig into this amazing passage of Scripture, I do want to take just another, <clears throat> we'll say, 20 seconds. Um, I'd like everyone to close their eyes, and in their mind's eye, try to remember your mom or someone who was like a mom to you. Um, remember maybe your children. Um, I know some, some, for some of us, um, your, your mother is no longer here. Um, for some of us, maybe she lives far away. And God has given us this good gift of family and love. Um, maybe you had a hard upbringing. Maybe you can pray for use this um, portion to pray for healing and for uh, reconciliation, maybe, with a parent that you're estranged from. But I want you to take the the next 20 seconds to do that. Would you all silently do this? One thing that I, God, um, remember about my my mother's mother, my grandmother, was her laugh. She had such a loud laugh, (laughs) and um, you could hear it from from very far away. Um, God, you've given us the good gift of love and family. And for many of us, we've enjoyed it for so long, and for some of us, we've wanted it but have been denied it. We thank you, God, that you are our family. That you are our creator, our father, our mother, our bridegroom. You're everything that we've wanted in the people around us and more. God, we pray that you would bless the rest of our time now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Paul says in Galatians chapter 2 that it was his responsibility. He was commissioned to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friends, there is a simple message a simple command, a simple commission that we all have to proclaim the gospel of Jesus. Amen? Amen. He was concerned that he was running this this race in vain, that he was laboring in vain. And I consider myself now as a parent, as my wife and I, who's such a wonderful mom, um, our desire is that we don't run that race in vain with them that what we know to be true about our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and all that he's done for us would be instilled in them. And Paul, as we open up this passage in Galatians chapter 2, was concerned about sort of his spiritual children. There was an event that was going on in the church that would have disrupted gospel unity. and That's what our sermon is about this morning. So Paul describes a scene in which he's forced to travel to Jerusalem to address the very issue of gospel unity, of unity around what is the central message, what is the heart and lifeblood of what it means to be a Christian. And this subject, I think, of gospel unity, continues to be of vital importance in our world today. Gospel unity is the life of the church. And you notice I didn't just say unity. Unity. Because we can have unity around a variety of things. Human unity, human rights, or whatever the case may be. There's all sorts of things that we can unite around. But the church is meant to unite around the gospel of Jesus Christ. What is gospel unity? Um, There are churches out there that are more what we would call liberal, right? Um, And these churches... Um, oftentimes sort of unite around a common humanness. So in in such places, maybe it's not as important as about what you believe about God or even how you choose to live your life. They don't unite around those things. But Normally they would just kind of unite around what is just the fact that we're created in the image of God and that we should just get along and be kind to each other. This would be... Uh, a message that you would find in in churches that we would describe more as liberal. On the other hand, though, there are churches that are more fundamentalist or conservative, you might call them. They might preach Christ hard as the only way, but they add a legalism. Don't drink alcohol. Don't dance. Right? Or maybe maybe it's not maybe that's kind of like a thing of the past from old footloose movies, right? And we don't really experience such hard legalism anymore. But maybe our churches are, are, are um, gather around and unite around a certain political persuasion or a theological system. This is the church that speaks in tongues, or this is the church that is Calvinist. End times, etc. See, neither of these two groups of churches, I think, are getting what gospel unity should bring to a church. Neither, I think, enjoys what is meant in Scripture by Christian unity. Fundamentalism goes too far, and liberalism doesn't go far enough. You see? In our text, the Apostle Paul is writing autobiographically. In other words, he's explaining to the Galatians a situation that he went through in his life. <clears throat> we learned earlier, if, you were, if you've been with us in this Galatians series, in chapter 1, we learned that Jesus had revealed himself to Paul supernaturally on, on the road um, to Damascus, is it? We learned that Jesus had revealed himself to Paul supernaturally, and that when he came to faith in the living God, even though prior he was violent towards the church... He was a murderer of Christians. He came to faith supernaturally on this road. Jesus had revealed himself to him, and he basically goes into hiding for three years. He he gets alone with Jesus, begins to examine the scriptures and pray. And after a period of three years, he goes to meet with the apostles in Jerusalem. And from there, for the next 14 years, he starts Churches all over Asia Minor, Minor, and Greece. Asia Minor is like modern-day Turkey. And he begins to start new churches all over the place. Galatia is one of them, and that's that's sort of the setting of this book, this New Testament letter called Galatians. It's Paul writing to a church that he started in the region of Galatia. So he starts these churches all over Asia, Asia Minor, and Greece, and he identi- identifies himself as an apostle to the Gentiles. And all that really means is that he was trying to reach the non-Jewish world, the Greek Hellenized world. At the time, the world was Hellenized. All that means is that Alexander the Great was really successful at making the world Greek. So there were Jews, at least in the mind of Israel, there were Jews and there were Greeks or Gentiles. The Apostle Paul's mission was to the Greek Hellenized world. So he describes himself as an apostle to the Gentiles, while Peter is an apostle to the Jews, so he remains in Jerusalem. Does that make sense? Fourteen years later, after he's started, he's peppered the ancient Near Eastern Europe with with Christian churches, he returns to Jerusalem, and he goes back, not to celebrate, not to have a pizza party, but because of a great concern could have crippled or even killed the church. In chapter 2, verse 2, we read it, I presented to them the gospel that I preached among the Gentiles. The them is Peter and the other apostles. I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles for fear that I was not running and had not been, been running my race in vain. What's going on? What is this high alert, this high concern that he's returning to Jerusalem, that he was preaching the gospel in vain. Now, Paul's concern was not that maybe he had gotten the gospel wrong. His concern, rather, was about unity in the leadership of the church at the time. False teachers were preaching a different—we talked about this a little bit—but they were preaching a different non-gospel, a Jesus plus something else gospel, right? Right? A Jesus for them it was a Jesus plus circumcision, and for us it could be a whole slew of things: a G- Jesus plus baptism, Jesus plus coming to church every Sunday, Jesus plus tithing ten percent. Right? We need to do all these things if we're going to be made right with God and we're going to be good Christians. You see, he was um, false teachers were preaching a different, basically a Jewish gospel. They were saying, yes, believe in Jesus, but we need to add all the Mosaic law to it. Keep the Sabbath, be circumcised, etc. A Jesus plus something else gospel. And Paul needed to be sure that the leadership of the church would not allow the existence of two gospels that said two completely different things to exist in the church. If a different version of the gospel was permitted, the church would turn into two different groups. And to those who believed in the Jesus plus nothing gospel versus those who said Jesus plus something else. Jesus plus some other virtue or good work. And this would discredit the gospel of Jesus Christ if these false teachers could demonstrate that the apostles didn't have unity with Paul, it would discredit Paul. And de facto, it would discredit the Jesus plus nothing gospel and all the churches that he had spent so long preaching this gospel to. They would crumble apart and fall into nothing. So Paul would have spent 14 years running or laboring in vain. His concern also was not that the apostles themselves had come to believe a different gospel. That wasn't, that, that's not quite as subtle as what was happening. His, his concern, rather, was that they would tolerate a different gospel in the church. That they would accept into the church both. You see? To save face. To keep peace. We don't want to make so-and-so angry, so let's just give him what he wants. Right? These false teachers were saying that all nations, all people, can be saved by faith in Jesus, yes, but also by becoming Jewish, as we had just mentioned, and this would certainly have split the church in two. Those who can, uh, could not eat meat, those who needed to recognize certain holy days and so forth, versus those who are right with God by faith alone. Mm-hmm. Neither would have accepted the other. The stakes were too high. I want you to consider some top context, too. Most of the Apostles after Jesus ascended to heaven, most of the apostles for a time stayed in Jerusalem. They didn't go to the ends of the earth. That's what Paul was doing. Many of them did that later on. But at the time, but, but early on, most of the, the um, apostles stayed in Jerusalem. So the people that they witnessed coming to faith in Jesus were most likely mostly Jewish, right? So these people coming to faith in Jesus, they already ate kosher, They already were circumcised. They already kept the Sabbath day. They were already kind of following the law of Moses to begin with. It was a part of who they were and what their culture was. But what happens, though, when a non-Jewish Greek-speaking Gentile comes to faith in Jesus who hasn't done any of those things and doesn't even know what any of them are? What would the church do? But these apostles, early on, wouldn't even have to think about those questions because most of the people coming to faith, for them, were Jewish. Diverse definitions of the gospel and their acceptance in the community of faith certainly would have created disunity. Verse 4 reads, This matter arose, in verse 4, chapter 2, This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks, To spy on our freedom. We'll get to that in a moment. They were free in Christ. What does that mean? Mm -hmm. And these guys were spying on it. They were spying on their freedom. How dare you not add, as a part of your religious rituals, these sorts of behaviors and duties. The pure and the true gospel was being jeopardized. In verse 5, we did not give in to them for a moment. Like a mama bear, right? He he knew that only the gospel, the Jesus plus nothing gospel, would give life to people and freedom and forgiveness and everything that they needed. Everything was on the line with this. And Paul loved people, loved the church, loved lost people too much to accept a false and phony view of what God has done for us. So he said, no way. We did not give it to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. You see what he's doing? We can sort of blast that sentence tooth out. Who's he talking to? Well, Galatia, right, the church in Galatia. But he's talking to me, man. Paul said that we would have no gospel if it weren't for this sentence in the Bible. We did not give in for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you so that you could hear it in your ears to this day, 2,000 years later, that Jesus plus nothing saves you. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not of yourself, it is the gift of God, right? We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. If he were to allow, or if the apostles early on were to allow these two different gospels to exist, the church would have fizzled out into nothing, and we wouldn't even know of it today. But God preserved it. God preserves his gospel, and he always will. What was their response? kind of already gave away the answer, but let's see. I wanted you to know that Paul took along this guy named Titus. Did you notice that? He brings along this guy named Titus with him. Now, Titus is a real, flesh-and-blood, uncircumcised Greek Christian. Right, He takes Titus, then Paul's smart, right? He doesn't take other Jewish Christians with him. He takes a Greek Christian with him. He wants the 11 apostles to look at him in the face and see what they say then, right? So he takes this real flesh and blood, uncircumcised Greek Greek Christians, and these false brothers in verse 4, what would they have demanded of Titus? You need to be circumcised, man. That was in the law of Moses. We'll get to that in a moment. They would have expected these Greek Christians, yes, great, you believe in Jesus, but you have to follow the law of Moses too. But in verse 3, not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. Okay? What about Peter and James? What about the rest of the apostles? These false teachers in Galatia were waiting sort of with bated breath to see what the apostles would do. Would they undermine Paul, or would they they stick with him? This was was their lengthy, if you want to read all about um, this situation, you can go to Acts chapter 15. Because a similar situation, similar question is happening in Acts chapter 15. And and there's a, a lengthy discussion about this question, but this is a part of it. This was their response, their conclusion. Peter stands up and he says this. Why do you test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe that it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as we are. Isn't that good news? That he didn't wuss out because he wanted his church to be big. Right? And and that's a challenge, friends. You know, I want more butts in the seats. Let's just kind of smooth this over, make it a little bit more comfortable for everybody. And the ironic thing is when you do that, butts leave. It's just true. I shouldn't say the word butts so much, right, on Mother's Day, but I did, sorry. In verse 6, the apostles added nothing to the gospel that they all had been preaching quote the apostles added nothing boom done problem solved right accepting these apostles what they did they accepted Titus into what they called the right hand of fellowship accepting Titus was proof that salvation comes by grace alone and not by ritual observance right? Not by performance. Not by works. Not Jesus plus circumcision or Jesus plus tongues or Jesus plus baptism or Jesus plus Calvinism or Jesus plus anything, any word that we want to throw in there. It is Jesus plus nothing that we are saved. You see, friends, and this is vital to our sanctification too, because we say, I know it's Jesus plus nothing that we're saved, but if you want to be a really good Christian, then you need to do these things too. No, the, the same thing applies to that as well. Faith in the Jesus plus nothing gospel also sanctifies you, grows you as, as, as a Christian. So we're not elite or better because we have, like, the secret doctrine that, that everyone else doesn't know, Right? It is by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ alone that we are saved and sanctified. They made clear the purpose of the law of Moses. So what is the purpose of the law? They, they with all this, they said, here is what the law of Moses was for. Here is why we don't believe that adherence to Old Testament ritual saves us. Well, that's a good question. It's a good thing to address. It says it, it talks about that all over the New Testament. Why does the church not apply the Old Testament laws of Moses. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 9. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices, that's like the, the lamb sacrifices, the law of Moses, the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. Well, why? Why did Moses have him do it then? Well, let's keep going. Colossians chapter 2. He forgave us all our sins having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you, but by by what you eat or drink. That's the law of Moses. Or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon, a celebration, or a Sabbath day. We could add circumcision to this. These, underline this in your Bible if you have one, in verse 17, These are a shadow of things that were to come. In other words, those things couldn't save them. They just pointed to what could. They were a shadow. A shadow is, that shadow is not me, right? It's just an outline of me. I'm me. See, Jesus is the Lamb of God. Jesus is the eternal rest, the Sabbath day. What is circumcision? Circumcision is depicting you need, we're sinners and we need to be cut off from our sin, right? We need to be purified and made holy. Jesus is the spiritual circumcision, right? That's why it says even in the Old Testament that they will have circumcised hearts. Galatians chapter 3, verse 24, we'll get to this later. So the law was our tutor, our teacher, until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. You see? So let me summarize all this. This is important. Because you're going to read the Old Testament, and you're going to wonder, like, what's going on? All this killing a sheep, and all these things that, they, that that Moses is telling them to do to worship God and to approach Him in His temple. What is happening here? The law revealed to us not the way to salvation. Those things, in other words, weren't saving us or Israel, but they were pointing pointing to the fact that we needed to be saved. They were it was a visual image of the reality that we are cut off from God, that we are stained by sin, that there is a problem, and that something needs to be sacrificed to save us, put in our place. But not a sheep, not a goat, not a cow, but Jesus Christ alone. These are what they call the shadow. That is, they represented what would be a greater reality. So Paul says, the law is your tutor; it teaches you two things that you are a sinner separated from God and that nothing under heaven can save you but Jesus Christ. Right? That's what it was teaching us. Jesus completed the mosaic sacrificial system because he was what it all pointed to. He was the better sacrifice, the better lamb, right? The better red heifer. He's the one that cleanses us when we couldn't cleanse ourselves. When that sheep just couldn't cut it. When our good works just don't cut it. When our baptism just doesn't cut it. He cuts it. Isn't that great news? He is the ultimate sacrifice. He is the eternal Sabbath. According to Peter, the law is an impossible burden if by keeping it we are made right with God. But if we are made right with God by grace through faith, the law is like honey in the mouth. In Christ, it is all accomplished. So when the church accepts Titus on the basis of his faith, that is the circumcision not of his body, but of his heart, it clearly defined the gospel as the work of Jesus plus nothing. Mama Bear protected the gospel. Oh, and friends, so should we. The clear definition of the gospel distinguishes between what is true and what is false. And it has some very important implications. Let's talk about those now. What are, what are the implications of all this? Of the Jesus plus nothing gospel? First, it said in our text, is freedom. You rem- Remember our freedom spies? Dun, 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 dun. They, got, they had some freedom spies. People were spying out the fact that, hey, they were eating meat on days they shouldn't. What are, they, what are they doing? And there's another place in Scripture where, where Paul even says, hey, by the way, you can even eat meat sacrificed to other gods because it's just meat. It doesn't matter, right? That would have been unthinkable prior to the death and resurrection of Christ for a Jewish person. So the first implication is freedom. If a false gospel spies on freedom, the implication is that the gospel gives us freedom true the gospel equals freedom not freedom to sin but freedom to accept the gracious gift of salvation not by works but by grace the gospel of jesus plus nothing frees us it frees it frees first our worship and here's how god's people in the old testament as we saw were under the law and they needed to follow they needed to worship god how the law of Moses told them to worship him. But in the New Covenant, because Jesus is the fulfillment of all those sorts of Old Testament analogies, we worship Jesus. We take the communion, the bread, the sacrifice of Christ, right? You see, we feast on him, not on unleavened bread or, or what they would have, or the, you know, the, the baking of a, of a lamb, so it frees our worship. We do not need to continue to apply the law of Moses in the way that we worship our God because it has been accomplished in Christ. These things were a shadow of Christ. He is the greater reality, so we worship him. Make sense? The second thing it frees us is culturally. It frees, the gospel frees us culturally. Christianity is not a nationalizing scheme. It's not a way to make people Jewish. It wasn't then and it isn't now. You see, for some it was. That's what these false teachers were trying to do. They were trying to get people to become part of the Jewish nation. The gospel is not a way to make people Jewish then, and it is not a way now to make people Western or American. Some people have tried to use it to that end. That's true. But that is antithetical to what the gospel is. In other words, it's changing what the message of Jesus is. And when you start to read the Bible and learn scripture, you'd realize that. Other cultures don't have to adapt to our dress, our custom, our language, our politics, our personal pet peeves, right? The things that we think are really, really wrong, but other other cultures just don't, right? The, The word of God is our standard. Not our moms and dads or politics or government. You see? So we can be Chinese and Christian, Moroccan and Christian, African and Christian, and we don't have to change our language, our food, or our songs. Isn't that good news? Third, we are free spiritually. Probably this is the most important one. If we are made right with God based on our behavior, we will never escape the guilt of our own conscience. Even on a good day, if we're honest, we will know that we have broken his law. Right? If we are, if we are made right with God on the basis of rule keeping, who could stand? That's a question, you know, that the book of Hebrews asks. Who could stand? We can't. God is too holy. He's too righteous. He's too altogether good. We're fallen. We all know it. That's again why they said the law of Moses was a tutor. It was meant to teach us the reality of our condition outside of God's holiness and goodness. So we are free in the gospel. We are free spiritually. We don't need to be afraid of his anger because we have violated his righteous commands because we are made right with him through the obedience of Jesus Christ. He stands in our place for us. You know what that means? We get credited. This is amazing. We get credited as it's it's as if Imagine if you could put your whole life on a screen and pinpoint all the times that you just screwed up royally. That would be embarrassing, first of all. But let's just say it's just for you, and you would see it. Imagine that God flipped the script, and he changed it, so that you, in all those instances, you did the right thing. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Wouldn't that be great news? But friends, that's the point of the gospel. In Christ, it's as if you have always been obedient to the Father in every moment of your life. He who knew no sin became our sin, and we became his righteousness, second Corinthians five twenty one. So in Christ, it's as if we have always honored and thought and deed. Is that wonderful? I'm not making this up, friends. This is the gospel. This is in scripture. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 will verify for you the amazing news. It's so important. It means that our confidence in life and having life and having forgiveness, having right relationship with God is not based on how we feel, whether or not we feel forgiven or feel right with God. We are objectively forgiven on the basis of the death of Jesus for what he did for us. So we're free. The, sempl- this, the second implication is unity. Unity. We accept anyone based on their faith in Jesus Christ. We unite around the gospel man, woman, young, or old. We we unite around our common faith in Jesus Christ. An American Christian, this is true whether you feel like it or not, an American Christian has more in common with a nomadic African pygmy than you do with your next door neighbor, should they not know Christ. Friends, you have more in common with the most foreign person you could imagine. They're your brother. They're your sister, and it matters not that you listen to the same music, or eat the same foods, or even know the same language, because who's going to be to the right hand of Jesus with you forever? Them, right? Christian Christian unity is not conditioned on cultural assimilation. It can't be if we're saved by God's grace through faith. There was this um, There was this missionary. I think it was Hudson Taylor. I mentioned this to you before, but he was, he was a missionary in China, and he did something at the time that was actually very offensive to American Christians. He started to dress like the Chinese. You see, we all went over there in our suits and ties, right, and looked all European and American, right? Spoke English, expected them to speak English, but he did something different. He learned Chinese and, expect, and dressed like them and ate their food. So you know what that, that meant? He was in a robe. He shaved his head and had a long ponytail. He looked Chinese. He dressed Chinese. And you know what he did? He brought down a barrier that shouldn't be there because there is no ba- there are no national barriers in the gospel. It doesn't matter how we dress or how we wear our hair, right? There was another guy. He was a missionary in South America. Um, there's a book on my, in my in my office called Brechko. His name's Bruce Olson. And he had the nerve to go into South America and build round churches instead of square ones. Have you heard about him? He went down there. He noticed none of the natives are going to church. So he he did this really weird kind of and brilliant thing, but like Captain Obvious, right? He goes to the natives and says, why won't you come to church? And he says, well, God is eternal, and he wouldn't go in a square church. He would go in a round one. No, that's... We know that's not true, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter the shape of our church. So he said, okay, I'm going to build a circle church. And all the missionaries were angry because we have square churches in the United States. So he said, I'm going to build a circle. one." you know what happened? They all came. And over time, they listened to the gospel and they got saved because Jesus doesn't care about our nationality. He does what he doesn't. I mean, he loves our culture, but what I'm saying is, it is not a condition of salvation or acceptance in Christ. For by grace you have been saved. We have a unity that is around Jesus, not around our cultural preferences. Amen? Amen. The one condition of unity, then, is faith in Jesus Christ. And to these, to those who would have faith in Christ, in verse 9, we extend the right hand of fellowship amen the right hand of fellowship and this is the larger point that which unites us is the gospel only that's what which, what unites us as a group of people here in Warrenwood Island is the gospel only see we have we have a partnership or a membership here in our church and really all that is about is a concern for the gospel Who are gospel people in this room that we're called to live out the gospel with, to defend the gospel with, to lead the church together around the gospel? To those we extend the right hand of fellowship. Amen? That's the larger point. That which unites us is the gospel only. That which divides us is the gospel only. It's over this issue that we should not give in for a moment. The third implication, this is kind of shocking, freedom, unity, and then all of a sudden they throw like this this, out of nowhere, this curveball oh, and by the way care for the poor what? where did that come from? it's almost like they could have said anything right, like, oh, take communion or do, right, like, it's just why, why, when they're talking about the gospel, the most important issue, that we're saved by grace through faith, do they say, oh, and by the way, let's remember the poor what's happening here? Because the third, gospel, the third implication of the gospel is charity. It's mercy. All I asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. It's, like I said, it seems kind of out of place, remember the poor. But friends, here's, here's why it's, this is here, I think. If the gospel... Hear this, okay? If the gospel is the message that God is saving those that cannot save themselves and that he saves us by sheer grace. In other words, we don't deserve it. We don't earn it. If that's the gospel of Jesus Christ, it should be obvious that the marching orders for Christians is mercy, compassion, benevolence. Matthew chapter 11, verse 6, Christ came to preach to the poor. Matthew chapter 25, verse 44 through 46. the fruit It says this, that the fruit of real faith in Jesus is our service to the poor, to the sick, to the refugee, and to the prisoner. And Luke chapter 2, verse 24. In the, in the incarnation, <clears throat> Jesus, who is eternally God, became a man, and who adopted them? What family did he enter into? A poor one. Mary and Joseph in Luke chapter 2 verse 24 are identified as impoverished. Christians in verse John chapter 3 verses 16 through 17 are to provide for the poor as Jesus provides for us. And then in Acts chapter 6, you know that the Bible even instructs the church to have a mercy ministry and mercy department. They elected deacons for this purpose, the implications of the gospel are freedom, our unity, and our mercy. I want to ask some questions now, okay? We're done. We're done. Just want to ask you some questions. Do you know the gospel of Jesus plus nothing? Do you rely on Jesus alone for your salvation, for your righteousness? Are we united around that message? What might get in the way of that unity that we have? What has gotten in the way? What rules are we tempted to kind of force on other people, even though the Bible says nothing about them? Cultural rules, moral rules, things that sort of just kind of crop up, that we say we all got to do this to be good Christians. Are we divided with brothers and sisters who have a common faith because we disagree about politics, or we speak a different language, or we eat different foods? Do we tend to prefer, like people in our leadership at the church, do we tend to prefer those educated in our schools to lead us, or do we prefer those who are strong in the word and prayer? See, if we believe that we've been saved by God's unmerited favor, we need to ask this question, too. Do we help others? we live sacrificially? Do we live generously? I invite you to all consider the answers to these questions for yourself, not to guilt you or shame you, but to free you, to follow God and to live for his grace. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, I pray, Lord, that this morning that we would be mama bears, that we would not give in for a moment this matter of the gospel. That we would unite around it. That we would love you around it. That we would serve you on its basis. Help us to remember, God, that the gospel frees us from the law, from our own laws. That the gospel unites us because we are united around the work of Christ alone and God the gospel directs us to love and to do mercy oh make us better at this Lord give us strength and help we thank you so much for this morning that you've given us God I pray Lord if there's anyone here this morning that has not come to faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior would you come to him now would you not let another moment go by would you in this moment Cry out to God in the silence of your own heart. Turn from your sin, friend, and accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, the way, the truth, and the life, the one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. Come and get him and be free. And God, for the rest of us, help us not to return, Lord, to that old system which is a heavy burden, but help us to remember your mercy and your unmerited favor on us. And God, like Paul, help us to remember that we are commissioned to proclaim and defend the good news. So bless our neighbors. Bless our family. Save them and use us to share Christ with them. I pray, Lord, that you would bless our area. Bless Warren, Rhode Island, our neighbors, the neighboring towns, the people that we influence. God, would you give us revival? Would you make this a breakthrough year of life? That we just went through a pretty weird year. God, would you give us a new one where you would use that difficult one to lead people to your love and grace? How we love you. Bless us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, would you stand with us for one last song? We're going to sing a song for you guys to go home and just enjoy your family together today in this wonderful Sunday.